Welcome to Have You Seen This, the world's only podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten visual media. All discussions will be spoiler heavy. You have been warned. Welcome to Have You Seen This? It's Jen. And Bella Lugosi as Tim, introducing the framing device for this episode. <laughs> Tim is here to pull the string. So what are we talking about uh, for this episode, Jen? Well, tonight we are talking about Jack's Back from 1988, starring James Spader. And tonight... Uh, very good movie. Tonight I might It's mean, free on Tubi. Yeah, this morning. Directed by Rowdy Harrington. Yeah. So if you're, if you're listening to this during the day, wait until the sun goes down. Then you're allowed to listen to the episode. <laughs> um actually what, what well you suggested this one tim so why don't you tell the folks what we're actually talking about uh, we are continuing to talk about crash because even after we recorded that two weeks ago i'm still thinking about that <laughs> fucking movie we we didn't even well, scratch the surface so to speak no on, we didn't um on uh what uh rosanna arquette's character yeah, and so to that end, I think <clears throat> what we're going to end up doing is uh, making a little video treat uh, for our listeners, and that's going to go hand-in-hand hand with uh, the introduction of some new Patreon tiers, which will give you access to video content. Believe um, me, if, if you're listening to our content and you're paying for it, you are already shedding tears. <laughs> Suckers! <laughs> No, thanks. We appreciate it. But in the meantime, yeah, for this episode, what are we actually yeah. talking about? What this is one that I suggested. I, uh, it's it's an already. Um, I don't know why I'm teasing it. The people listening to this have already seen the title of the episode. We're talking about Edward's Glen or Glenda. So I know that Ed Edward is already familiar territory for anyone who's you know in the in the same orbit as as uh, we are. Um, I randomly caught Glen or Glenda on um, on the B zone. Uh, and yeah, I found it, um, I found it strangely full of, uh, pathos and empathy for the, uh, protagonist. This movie directed by Ed Wood. I, I wonder why that is. Yeah, it's, and it is a wild personal statement for 1950 fucking three. Yeah. Even if it was made in a kind of exploitation milieu, um, this is absolutely an example of an auteur putting, a lot of himself into the film, which yeah, I think is is it is genuinely pretty rare and and really only happens with people like Edward, right? Um, people who are kind of working without any sort of mainstream interference, yeah, whatsoever. Yeah, and this to me kind of you know changed my uh, perception of Edward, not as a good filmmaker. Let's get that out of the way because. Oh, yeah, that no. is strictly off the table. Oof. But if anyone knows yeah. him from, you know, Plan 9 from Outer Space or, <laughs> you know, other, uh, you know, uh, other uh, cinematic embarrassments to, you know, Tor Johnson or Bela Lugosi, um, this this movie, I want to say, uh, you know, in, in parlance that the kids use these days, it hits different. <laughs> because, like, he does, he does work in the same um, format that he's familiar with. He has... You know, Bela Lugosi there for not really any good reason. 
relies heavily on stock footage because it's cheap. Um, but mm-hmm. the but the point that he's making is it it's progressive and it's salient and it's it's a well reasoned argument. I mean, even though it is made by a what like a police detective talking to a psychiatrist, and it's just two talking heads basically. But like the points that they make, you're like, you know, the the guy's done his homework. Almost as if yeah. Ed Wood is somehow invested in the issue of transvestism. <laughs> yeah, and because of that, uh, he was a little bit of a joke. Um, in the years immediately following his death, not only because of his notoriously bad canon, but because it's like, oh, haha, and he also liked to put on girls' clothes. Yeah, it's kind of um, like, oh, that's a weird outlier. Like, it isn't something that you would have otherwise heard of. You're just like, this guy's right, like, right. I don't know, he's a freak. What are you going to do? And before we dive in, I have to mention how indebted I am to pretty much the the definitive... Ed Wood biography, as much as you can say that there's a definitive Ed Wood biography, um, because this is very difficult material to, you know, kind of collective make sense of because there's a, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of conflicting stories about Ed Wood. There's a lot of bullshitting, a lot of, um, you know, and it's just the nature of memory. But um, the definitive biography is a Nightmare of Ecstasy, by Rudolph Gray, which uh, the author put together, I think, over the course of about 10 years, and he pretty much talked to every Wood associate that was still alive that he could talk to. And um, some of them are pseudonymous in the book, I think, because they were associated with him in his decline and, you know, didn't want to be identified. But, you know, all the, you know, all the, all the biggies are in there, um, you know, uh, Will Kelton the cop, um, you know, his uh, girlfriend Dolores Fuller, who also appears in Glen or Glenda, um, his longtime wife Kathy Wood, who I think he wasn't even technically legally married to, um, because he claimed that he had annulled his marriage with his second wife, but I, I don't think they ever got around to it. She just left. <laughs> and um, her leaving is like that, eh, basically annulled. Yeah, and so. Basically, anyone who knew him and could speak at length about him was interviewed for this book. And it is very fascinating reading. Um, I like the author's approach in that he pretty much says, like, look, a lot of these stories conflict. And I left him that way because, you know, what are you going to do? Right. Yeah. It, <laughs> so, you, the reader, must decide. Yeah. Which is kind of um, like what opens the movie too like he he does already make you kind of complicit in the the events that unfold because he has a title card describing you know the issue of you know transvestism i'm pretty sure i'm pronouncing that correctly Mm -hmm. but at the end like you know he underscores it you know that this is an issue of society and you are society which is to you know it, it really puts the the viewer on the hook like you're invested in this too like your attitudes and your opinions matter like if you want to treat me as a joke like you are actively contributing to, you know, men who dress up as women as, you know, this marginalized joke class. Damn, Edward hitting us with We Live in a Society in 1953. <laughs> For real. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he he's very astute about, you know, his own proclivity and, you know, what it what it meant. Well, it him. certainly is something that he has thought about a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think I mentioned that uh, he... Well, Edward has been 
a bit of a joke for a long time just because of his work and because, you know, he was he's also like the transvestite director. They did deal with it in um, the Tim Burton biopic, Ed Wood. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen it since biopic. like fucking 1995. So I can't I, I don't think I can comment on on how I remember it. was. Yeah, good. that's just a. That's just a fuzzy black and white memory. And, you know, I mean, you're watching it with, like, the brain of a different person at that point, basically. Yeah, exactly. Um, So we're going to confine ourselves to uh, Glenn or Glenda and the little biographical information that we have access to. But I think it's important to make this point, and uh, this is from the introduction to Nightmare of Ecstasy. On the morning of December 7th, 1978, Ed Wood was evicted from his tiny Hollywood apartment on Yucca Street. Destitute, he and his wife moved in with an actor friend. Three days later, he died of a heart attack. Ignored or reviled by critics when he was alive, Wood was the target of still more ridicule soon after his death. The jackals of bourgeois sensibility moved in. With an offensive smugness and condescension towards his movies and novels, they had a field day of derision over the revelation of his transvestism. Um, and I think that that might be a dig at, um, kind of the, the culture around things like the Golden Turkey Awards. That's the Michael and Harry Medved book that came out in the early eighties, which I think, um, was kind of the beginning of the next wave of like ironically enjoying movies. Um, or, you know, right around that time. Do you know when the, when they start giving out, uh, Golden Raspberries? Uh, I should know because I just um, came across a thing that mentioned that. I feel like it was like the late 70s, but don't quote me on that because I don't have the info in front of me. I do right. know that um, in the crash episode, we talked about the uh, the Stinkers Awards, which I think... Oh, yeah, the defunct Stinkers Awards. Yeah, which uh, I think started around the, the mid-70s, but um, these all kind of represent like a kind of camp appreciation of bad cinema i mean i mean i wouldn't put crash and you know plan nine in the same sort of well i wouldn't even consider one bad but i mean to even say that you appreciate them in the same level of camping well that's the point that i'm kind of trying to get to is that um i think that we made it pretty clear in the crash episode like how we felt about the movie and how much a lot of people at the time missed the point you know, I missed the fucking point the first time I watched it. Yes. Yeah, someone ought to make a podcast about malign movies. <laughs> and it's true that r- right after Wood's death, <laughs> um, there was this new wave of discovery of his films, which, you know, I don't, I don't think is a bad thing. But there was also the derision that Gray mentions in his introduction to his book where it's like yeah look you know look at this fucking crap this guy doesn't know how to make a fucking movie and he's some kind of weirdo cross-dresser yeah i mean the the first one is fair and it's like yeah you know judge judge the work on its own merits but then also to be like oh and on top of that he's a freak right that's like that that's the part that you know that that we're that we're here to here to uh be apologists for i guess or no not the opposite. Right, right, right. We're here. We're here, yeah. We're here to like. We're we're here to take the word back. <laughs> it's our word now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And not an unkind word, as they say in the movie. And like I was saying, far be it from us to kind of malign uh, 
a an ironic enjoyment of certain types of cinema but mm -hmm. i hope that at least we come to the things that we watch with at least an open mind and a little bit of compassion for the people associated with it or just you know for people in general sure you know because it's yeah, it's, yeah. um <laughs> that's our episode good night everyone <laughs> remember friends Future events will affect you like this in the future, or whatever the fuck Chris will say. Yes. I fucked that up. <laughs> if it affects me in the past, I'm gonna know. I'm gonna wonder how the hell they manage that. My friends. Um, it's like that. Uh, it's like that camera that Mitch Hedberg had. <laughs> so there's a picture of me when I'm older. <laughs> so you know we're not here to bury Ed Wood, and we're right, not necessarily yeah. here to That's praise him, much... but we're 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 here to give him a fair hearing <laughs> right yeah well he, him as a uh as an inept uh uh as a poor filmmaker is is a known but him as a transvestite is maybe something that hasn't gotten the same sort of even-handed um i don't know analysis well i i feel because that it was it's an aspect of his life that i feel like you know needs addressing and that's what you know glenn or glenda is for and, and it kind of I want to say it redeems itself in that it does have, um, uh, like you know, like we said earlier, it does have a pathos to it. It does have. It is a film that has, you know, it's it has a, a point to it. it. It has a kind of um, meaning. Mm -hmm. Like you can tell that it's significant to the people who made it, and that's the sort of thing that a lot of the time kind of people get down on, where it's like, you know, why does this film exist? Like, who is it made for? Is this just entertainment? Does it have any kind of message? Does it have any point to it? Does it have any sort of you know impact on society? And this is, you know, about, it, it is more or less a, you know, it's a uh, sensational documentary about this particular, you know, subculture or, you know, um, uh, it, sexual proclivity or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, because in this case, um, we're talking about a paraphilia, even though <clears throat> the movie itself was intended to be an exploration of transgenderism um, because of the... Yeah, that gets thrown in here, too. Yeah, and that was because um, of the Christine Jorgensen story. Um, Christine Jorgensen... The uh, leader, uh, lead singer of Ministry. Exactly. Um. Yes. <laughs> Before she became Al. <laughs> um, but um, Christine Jorgensen was not not the first trans woman, but maybe one of the most visible in you know the middle of the twentieth century. Um, and a producer named George Weiss decided that he wanted to make <clears throat> an exploitation movie about you know the uh, sex changes because hey, mm -hmm. that's a spicy topic, right? And um, to that it end, is. he hired Ed Wood, who I think at the time had um, been kind of bopping around Hollywood trying to get, uh, like, he tried to get a Western pilot made. <laughs> trying to get, make his rent. Yeah, he was, he was definitely a guy that was for hire and uh, trying to be, mm -hmm. he was trying to be Orson Welles as, <clears throat> as best he could. <laughs> the poor guy yeah um it, but he wasn't having much success and then um weiss hired him to write and direct this and it's and he put his own spin on it yeah to say the least again because this was it was supposed to be a movie about sex changes but it ends up 
being it's about a lot more than that. It's right. it's not just it's not just the the what but the why, and that's kind of important. And he doesn't you know limit it to you know just being a transsexual or an intersex person. Mm-hmm. Um, it is also about you know transvestites and and it distinguishes um, among them because they even yes. you know have ha- they even stop to say you know it's like well you know my husband the uh, you know transvestite is he also a homosexual. And it's like no, that's those are two completely different things. And the the right. homosexual and the transvestite and the transsexual are each distinct. And the movie takes pains to um, differentiate the three. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting the way rather that, than just being like, oh, he's a sissy. I don't know. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting the way that um, this is framed by some like cultural commentators i think um let me let me find this is bill lugosi a cultural commentator i mean he tried <laughs> right well i mean the the format of it is you know if if all edward has is a hammer you know every every movie that he's going to turn out is going to look like some kind of like genre um horror movie schlock like it is you know bookended by bill lugosi with um as jen described it like this sort of word salad cultural commentary it's edward being very ham-fisted trying to establish the premise of you know where he's like it's bell lugosi like looking out over this the city from you know his remote um you know haunted den basically and he's like people going here and there and people everywhere and who who knows where they're going and it's it's it doesn't come across but what he's saying is like how well can you know a person? Like there, you know, there are a million stories in the naked city. Like that, that's what they're going for. Boy, I admire your ability to draw meaning from any of that. Well, as an as an inarticulate person, I, <laughs> I you know, I recognize my own. <laughs> because apparently Wood was an incredibly prolific writer. Like yeah. even towards the ends of his end of his life, when he was Never plagued by alcoholism, um, yeah. he had been directing basically what you would call skin flicks <laughs> flicks for a while. He also wrote a hell of a lot of porn, um, mm-hmm. erotic literature, um, and he hey, would, it sells. Yeah, and he would periodically have to hawk his typewriter to get money for booze, and then he would get it out of hawk and. Right, 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 and then he would hawk the typewriter. It was, it's, it's, it's really sad. Like the 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 arc of Wood's life is described in Nightmare of Ecstasy as just unbelievably tragic, and it kind of added to the pathos that you know you already experience watching uh, Glenn or Glenda. But uh, to go back to something that we were talking about before, um, where Tim mentioned that the movie takes pains to differentiate you know, a transvestite from Mm. a homosexual, um, people kind of still, I less so nowadays, now that trans people are more visible, are more visible, but people still, I think kind of conflate the two, even though like, you know, dressing like, Oh, well, if you dress like the opposite sex, it means that you want to be gay. Right. It's like, well, yeah. See, it's just like in a movie, whenever they portray something, it's the tacit endorsement thereof. Right. And, um, there's a book called, uh, from 2015 called the cinematic misadventures of Ed Wood, which, um, I recommend the intros 
to the book, uh, more so than the book itself, because it's, uh, you know, I mean, it, it analyzes the oeuvre of wood, mm-hmm. but not in any particularly in insightful or interesting way. It's, it's basically like, you know, surface level analysis of wood films. But mm-hmm. um, there are a couple of introductions, which are, um, the first one is by a guy who um, made a documentary called Look Back at Angora, which was released by Rhino in the mid-90s, which was kind of a little, um, like an hour-long look at the life and career of Ed Wood, mm-hmm. which, you know, is kind of interesting to watch, and it, you can get it easily on YouTube. Um, but he takes pains in the introduction to debunk a lot of myths about Ed Wood and kind of defend the guy as like, yeah, you know, he was a fucking bad filmmaker and like, yeah, he tried and failed, but like, so fucking what? Um, and unfortunately the rest of the book isn't as good as that. And you know, this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about where, um, in the chapter where they analyze Glenn or Glenda, he has this to say about, um, you know, the whole question of, uh, transvestism and homosexuality. Mm -hmm. Also telling that, this is, in many ways, Wood's own story is his constant insistence that he is not homosexual. This point is needlessly made repeatedly throughout the film. It is sadly ironic that Wood, who longs for the world to understand his situation as a transvestite, seems to look down at homosexuals. Okay, here, here's the point. <laughs> and here's the guy analyzing it. <laughs> And yeah, like you you get what I'm saying, right? Like it's it's right. like it's an assertion of self which doesn't automatically yeah. equate to like, well, I'm not one of those fags. I yeah, just put well, I mean, girls' clothes. Right. Yeah, well, one of the further tragedies of, you know, Edward's life, not just it, you know, as him being a desperate terrible filmmaker is that, you know, he's also, you know, marginalized with this, you know, particular paraphilia. That it's, you know, the world doesn't understand it. So he's kind of already out of step with, I mean, I don't, I don't want to point to the 1950s as being a particularly, you know, rigid and conformist uh, (laughs) time in society, but I can't think of a more rigid conformist one. And to to be a guy who's like, even like just slightly bent, like in that time, that has got to be a tough road to hoe. Yeah. And the thing is, is, um... You know, in spite of being marginal as a filmmaker, I think because Wood was a, you know, he was a a charming and, you know, dapper and handsome guy. He had like a little bit more leeway to kind of get away with this where it's like, hey, you know, I'm just I'm just a guy, you know, and Mm -hmm. I like to do this. It's it should be fine. Um well, I mean, you can also see how a lot of campiness kind of came out of the um, uh, undermining of that kind of 1950s ideal as well, like a lot of John Waters stuff. Yeah. Yeah, there really is a direct line <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> from this to divine and onward. Um, yeah, or I mean, hell, you know, the, what's been said about uh, Blue Velvet, just, you know, there's this yeah. sort of you know, dark undercurrent under this, you know, mm-hmm. idealized 1950s, you know, suburban fantasy. And the interesting thing about... Um, the the topic of this movie because um you know again it is it's 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 a movie about a fetish and mm-hmm. but it's a it's a fetish that 
can be lived out in public. I mean, there is footage of Edward as a title character, you know, just going out like, you know, dressed up as Glenda, like on the mm-hmm. street. And it's something which he did do in real life. And, um, you know, one of the people who knew him from his Hollywood days uh, said this in Nightmare of Ecstasy. Um he wore earrings, but he would always take them off and put them in his briefcase. He said, if I ever got caught going home, it would be hell. I got caught once and the police beat me up. So just by putting on an accessory, like he's taking a risk to his physical safety. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you want to talk about like, you know, homosexuals in the Middle East or something where like just him existing or trying to be like normal for him is so out of step with societal norms for something that isn't even hurting anyone else, but putting himself at great personal risk. Yeah. And that's why like, um, we're, you yeah, know, I mean, we're getting into like boys don't cry territory. Yeah. And I was interested to find out when I watched Glenn or Glenn, cause I'd actually never seen it before. Uh, I've seen plan nine, like, I can't. Oh God. Yeah. I've with or it. without the riff tracks commentary. <laughs> um, but when I started Glen or Glenda, I was interested to see if I was going to derive a me- like. I was like, is the, like w- because I didn't, I hadn't delved into Edward's biography yet, and I was like, well, was he trans or, you know, is this was this transvestism? And you know, from the movie and from reading about him, it's like no, he just was really passionate about his particular paraphilia. Like he loved women. He loved. I mean, he fucked. He got pussy. Yeah. Um. He loved. He loved women, women so much. He wanted to look like one. Yeah, that's like, <laughs> which is which is, and it's not transness. It's it's like this expression of. Uh, well, and it, it's like a tactile thing because, you know, a much is made in, um, uh, you know, by everyone who knew him, like of his love of Angora. Mm-hmm. Um, the man loved yeah. his Angora sweaters. And and here, here's the thing, like as a brief sidebar to your point, Angora feels fucking fantastic. What's wrong with that? Yeah, it does. Like that's the, I think that's the bigger like contextualist point here is that whether you're a transvestite in the 1950s or just a person with hands, Angora <laughs> feels fucking amazing. And I think one of the points he makes in the movie is, because he he kind of, it feels like he keeps going back to this. It's like, you're a guy and you aren't able to, like, touch things that feel nice. Yes. You aren't able to feel comfortable. You aren't, like, I mean, you know, what, you know, what are, are some, you know, really nice, comfortable-feeling guys' clothes? Yeah. And I think like that's kind of the point he's making, where it's like, you know, you want to put on a suit and slap on this dumb hat and, you know, just kind of walk around like a schlub. It's like, no, I want to feel nice. I want to feel pretty. Yeah. And like the the normal, you know, 1950s male vestments just didn't do it for Ed. No, I mean. Yeah. And you like, can sympathize with him just being like, I want to feel nice, too. Exactly. And that's yeah. uh, that's something which is which you have you know, you've just pointed out and I, which I think is emphasized in the film. And it is a sad thing is that these are experiences which are normally held back from boys and men. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the very notion that, um, you know, he could, he could feel attractive mm-hmm. in whatever way he had, um, come to it. 
mm-hmm. because just for whatever, you know, the social mores of the time didn't allow for him to feel that way on his own for whatever reason. But, you know, he can he can sort of um, imprint upon this particular physical object and be like, I think those things are pretty, you know, and they get a lot of my attention, a lot of my affection. I would like to <laughs> receive affection as well. And if yes. that means, and if that twists into, well, I need to dress like a woman in order to feel that way. That's, you know, that's how Ed came to it. There are a lot of different ways around it. And this is just one way, but the, the important thing, like the merit of the movie is that it does sort of uh, open that topic as, you know, something to, to be sympathetic towards, you know, not, not just saying, Hey, you know, accept men who dress like women, but just like, understand where they're coming from and to not marginalize them or treat them like outcasts to just take a moment to think about why they are the way they are and to just have a little empathy for your fellow man. Yeah. It's really, really incredibly radical, especially for the time. Yeah. And so if you go into that with like your only knowledge of Edward being, you know, plan nine and then Mm -hmm. to see this and be like, this is really heartfelt and tragic. It it certainly made an impression on me. Yeah, and because the movie is so goofy and inept, you would think that you might want to laugh at it. But you, I, I could, I could not laugh at this movie. Really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has, uh, you know, an honesty and a sincerity to it that, you know, that is something that you wouldn't expect to see going into it. Well, I mean, t- you can you can kind of like you know laugh ironically if you're you know a jaded hipster to be like hey, it's clearly that this guy it's clear that this guy you know really was into this thing but it's like yeah obviously he made a movie about it. he's trying to tell you like how he's feeling about this you know difficult issue of his yeah and trying trying his very very best to express himself and yeah and yeah, you know, the unfortunate thing that I mentioned earlier is that you know if it's Ed Wood, it's going to come out as schlock. Like mm-hmm. you know, you have like it's it's framed as basically, and you know he does touch on this, not very well, mind you, but he does touch on you know the notion of you know societal progress and how that can be difficult and you know for people to come to terms with, and you know Frankenstein being yes. you know the um uh yeah the uh, the primordial you know gothic sci-fi you know, um, story like, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, uh, transsexual, you know, operation Mm -hmm. is sort of a modern Frankenstein story. If you want to put it that way. And it's something that, you know, would have been scary at the time. And then to, to recontextualize it, it's still scary and it's relevant. Exactly. And I think that, um, there are a lot of people who would say, who would be like, oh my God, like, how can you, how can you say that? How can you, how can you compare trans people to Frankenstein's monster? The Oh, idea... oh I don't know, like an innocent person who was like hunted by villagers? Exactly. I can well, kind of see it. Well, yeah. And, and the reason I mention, I call that out is because I know so many trans people who deeply identify with the monstrous and the grotesque because of the way that they are made to feel in society. Yeah. Never mind, you know, the surgery scars alone being something that you can make a really, you know, you can make an easy connection between that and, you know, the Frankenstein. Yeah. And there is so much, so many trans works of art, which deal with these, 
these topics and this kind of imagery, the, the imagery of the, you know, the grotesque, the malformed, the monstrous, um, mm-hmm. it, there's a reason that why it resonates. And, you know, if you read Frankenstein with like, you know, even half a brain, half a convict's brain, um, <laughs> half an you, Abbey normal brain, <laughs> you know, you, you really clue into the, the, the absolute pathos in, in the story and the loneliness of Frankenstein's creation. Like there's yeah. a reason which, why people are still reading that story like hundreds of years after it was first written. Yeah. So with a, a little more effort than, you know, Ed was able to conjure up. <laughs> yeah. You can make a, you know, transvestite or transsexual um, adjacent Frankenstein story. Yes. I um, watch it. Um, yeah. Did you want to like go through the movie? Cause there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> there there is and i mean i'm kind of touching on here and there as the as the conversation takes us there um yeah the 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 bell lugosi stuff i i it doesn't fit but the the thing that i do want to say about that is because we talked a lot about you know edward's life and you know sort of the tragedy of it and you know the the way he you know never really got any respect and sort of was you know this hard worker that was just you know in in decline and you kind of see the same thing with, with Bela Lugosi. Like, I see, you know, and this is you know, purely speculation on my part, but, I mean, I see Bela Lugosi at the end of his, his, you know, long and storied career, towards the end of his life, where, like, all of his, you know, hangers-on and connections have, have left him. And it's just this one, like, loser suck-up who, like, you know, who reveres him and kisses his ass and, like, wants, to be in, wants him to be in his movie... But like, and, and and like that's that's the only option that that Lugosi is left with is this one kind of sycophant who like still is his fan even though he's not like popular or you know famous or even like has all his faculties anymore. You know, mm-hmm. he's this guy who's like you know, you know this this de- decrepit man like you know shooting morphine. Mm-hmm. But like, still, there's Edward being like, "Hey, come be in my movie. You're my hero." Yeah. And just like there's just something sad about like the the two of them working together. Yeah, and there was some contention about Wood's relationship with Lugosi. Um, some people, including um, Bell Lugosi's son, were like, "Oh, you know, like Ed Wood, he was terrible. He was just exploiting a lonely, broke, drug addicted old man. Like it was really terrible." And mm-hmm. Based on what other people who actually knew the two of them contemporaneously have said, I really, my impression is, you know, in spite, obviously, like, Ed Wood had his motivations in in cultivating this friendship, but he had an absolutely genuine, all-encompassing adoration of horror cinema. Like, he was a genuine fan of Lugosi, and he actually helped him out quite a bit toward the end of his life. I mean, like you said, no one else was was hiring Paul right. Lugosi in spite of the fact that he was a living legend. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and Ed Wood, according to people who knew him, was really terrible with money, but um, in the way that a lot of people who are terrible with money are, he was also very generous when he did have money. And, um, like, I think that they paid Bill Lugosi, like, what would be like considered a princely sum? Uh, I think it was like five grand 
for appearing that's, in yeah. this. It was like a thousand bucks a day, which is like, you know, that that that's not even chump change now. And like, it certainly yeah, wasn't at the time. He's um, helping out his, you know, his kind of has been friend. Yeah. And the people who knew them are like, no, no, Eddie like helped out Bella. Like he was one of the only people who was there for him when he was dying because nobody yeah. else gave a shit. Um, so that's another, and I, I wish I had seen the, the, the Burton movie, Ed Wood more recently. Cause then I feel like I could comment on how their, you know, their relationship was depicted, but I can't, so I won't. Um, <laughs> all right, great. <laughs> but, well, yeah. And, and again, this is all just based on my, you know, speculation backed up with Jen's actual research. But yeah, I mean, I'm just like kind of putting myself in the mind of, you know, what is going on? With Edward and you know Bella Lugosi shooting these more right, or right, less right, right. unnecessary framing scenes for his you know transvestite documentary. Well, and I also think that Lugosi's appearance came from. Uh, um, I think the producer also had this idea. Uh, this was a man called George Weiss. He had an idea that they would be able to sell it better with a star's name on it. Um, and hey, Scott Shaw told us the same thing. You got to get at least one washed up old has been in your movie who's, pe- whose name people recognize. Yeah, apparently. And, you know, to, Bella- to get distribution. So, you know, hey, was he wrong? Yeah, hey, th- see? Zen filmmaking pays off in a big way. <laughs> Bella um, Lugosi's Glenn or Glenda. Now, the interesting thing about uh, Glenn or Glenda is that this it the movie did play in theaters but not very widely it was not salacious enough for you know kind of like the uh, what would you call it like the the jerk movie circuit (laughs) and it was not it was way too weird for regular movies yeah i mean i don't i I don't know if you want to say this about a movie about a transvestite but you know it's kind of not one thing or the other (laughs) It was too ambiguous for people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Couldn't really put in a define it in one box. So, yeah. And I can't, um, like, it, I, it still blows my mind that they made this in 1953. Um, so, yeah. yeah so, it, it played, like, And that, scattered... like, its attitudes are still, like, progressive to be contemporary. Yeah. Which I think we'll want to come back to that when we yeah. talk about, like, some of the dialogue in the movie Mm -hmm. i'm glad you mentioned that because that's like a really good point well that was the thing that was arresting for me because we're used to like you know cultural studies from the 50s being just like you know mind-numbingly stupid yeah like like don't wash your clothes with gasoline that kind of stuff (laughs) yeah and you know there are some teaching how to use a calendar yeah and there are some weird um statements in this movie like knowing what psychology was in the 1950s but like Mm -hmm. Even considering that, it's still like, you know, really, really progressive. Um, oh, yeah, I was talking about the the distribution of Glenn or Glenda. Yeah, so it wasn't really widely distributed. And in fact, um, while a lot of Wood's movies gained their notoriety by appearing on television, I think starting in the early 60s, you know, because they'd been sold cheaply as, as filler, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, Glenn or Glenda wasn't, and it wasn't really seen until it was screened um, in starting December 1978, interestingly, the same month that Ed Wood passed away, um, at the Thalia Theater in New York. They started doing Friday midnight screenings of it. 
Yeah, I mean, going into it, I was expecting something more salacious, like, you know, and more agenda-driven, like, reefer madness. Something that's just, like, completely divorced from reality. Yeah, and, yeah, because reefer madness is, like, well, <laughs> Glenn or Glenda is, is... If you want to talk, like, a movie, quote-unquote, pushing an agenda, like, that is... That is Reefer Madness. Yeah, and Reefer Madness is completely reactionary. Yeah. Like there is there is no there is no empathy whatsoever for the guilty in, in Right. Ne- in Reefer never Madness. mind that like the the Reefer part of it plays a small role in it where it's really more like hey, don't murder people. It would be really funny if at the end of Re- Reefer Madness they're like, "Hey, this weed was laced with PCP the whole time." <laughs> Don't smoke weed and also, you know, smoke an eight ball or whatever or inject. <laughs> don't I, do I'm weed terrible. mixed with speed balls. Yeah. <laughs> um, don't smoke PCP. So, yeah, I guess that um, uh, I, I, I guess that the kind of the, the new renaissance of like Ed Wood films kind of came at like the, the end of the 70s, which was kind of a. Um, uh probably like a peak you know one of the peaks of kind of a a gay liberation you know right on immediately before the AIDS crisis like you know after like you know a decade and a half of you know visible activism so you know Mm -hmm. the moment was right but you know the movie like Tim said earlier the movie is relevant still today so um you know we can get into the content of it a little bit yeah, and he even kind of trots out, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, sort of reactionary, um, you know, like naturalistic fallacies, because he's like, you know, what would people think of the motor car or the aeroplane? And it's I like, like <laughs> I like, I like the parts where it's like, because uh, you know, when you when you're talking about someone you hate, and mm-hmm. you talk in their voice, you do like the the dumb guy or girl voice, and so there people are like, the airplane. Yeah. <laughs> like I look at me, I'm flying in an airplane. The, the car scared the horses. <laughs> uh, great. Now we're gonna get like you know, uh, re or retard, like the uh, documentary for the mentally disabled. That what? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> no, I'm saying like a Glenda. We're gonna get a Glenda Glenda for people oh, who do like pfft. stupid voices. <laughs> like that's very offensive. This is the way I normally talk. <laughs> that is the way you normally talk. I know. I'm <laughs> Tim. This is how I talk. <laughs> it's true. I'm, I'm affecting my uh, my white guy voice for this podcast. Um, <laughs> Actually, so, Tim talks like this. Yeah. Like a cool yeah. guy. <laughs> talk like that David Cross character. <laughs> You're holding your throat the whole time. Yeah, look out for our, look out for our first video, Tim or Timmy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he does, he does like right away dispense with the naturalistic fallacy that, you know, being a logical fallacy, which is like, if it isn't natural, you know, it's not, it's bad. Like only natural things are good. Like, you know, botulism and grizzly bears. Right. Yeah. Those are the only safe things. Um, so he does, you know, deftly, um, move that into the issue of, you know, uh, sex reassignment surgery or you know transsexuals because he says you know we've we've corrected that which nature has not given us yet the world is shocked by a sex change it's kind of like that you know um uh what was it like you know the that uh infamous tweet of the woman who's like 
you know, who, you know, has some problem with like, you know, uh, vaccines or, you know, trans transsexuals or something. And it's like, you know, Barbara, don't you wear glasses? <laughs> like, yeah, you know, like, you know, the God has made, you know, God doesn't make mistakes. Like, well, hmm. why are you wearing corrective lenses then? And yeah, this, the notion that like, yeah, there has always existed technology to improve our lives and to, you know, fix the things that didn't quite work right. You know, there there can be corrective surgery for any number of, um, uh, um, you know, birth effects or whatever. Yeah, or, I have or you know any sort of congenital disorders, but it's like this is you know a mental disorder that can be resolved with surgery. Like we have the ability to correct this problem, why not correct it? Why why not improve the person's life? Yeah, I found it a perusal of photographs of uh, fetal defects will quickly mm-hmm. disabuse you of the notion that God does not make mistakes. Yeah, God don't make no trash. Oh boy, like. There are going right. to be times when God is like, ooh, shit. Oh, oh man, I, I know it's all part of my plan, but I, I sometimes got to take a Sunday off and just reflect on how profoundly fucked up an individual I am. Or you know what else um, You know what else does that for me is ectopic pregnancies. It's like a pregnancy which is viable except it has implanted outside the wound and womb and will kill yeah. the host if it progresses. All, all part of God's plan. Yeah, to yeah. kill women. <laughs> you know, you can't make an omelet without, uh, you know, and, uh, without bursting a few uh, uteruses. <laughs> I don't know. Gross. Yeah. Um. yeah, so so right away he addresses that where he's like, look, just because like it isn't natural doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean that it's wrong to, to fix something or to change society to um, to in a way that allows for the most, I don't know, contentment or comfort for the greatest amount of people. Mm-hmm. I, I know that's really not what, you know, American society is about right now. But, <laughs> say. yeah, oh, we really do live in a society. <laughs> so, so yeah, like, you know, Ed, like the, the purpose of this is just to be like, yeah, have some compassion for your fellow man who is maybe um, a little left of center from, from what your expectations of, you know, normal masculinity might be. Yeah. And, um, you know, the movie um, makes his case reasonably persuasively for what it is. Um, Tim, did you enjoy this movie because it starts like a horror anthology? <laughs> yeah, I, I was waiting for, you know, a reefer madness clusterfuck. And then, you know, even though it, it and actually like as a person who's, you know, I, I can get where he's coming from, you know, because like I was never like big into sports. You know, I was, you know, I, I like, you know, movies and, you know, role-playing games. Uh, if you want to play Traveler, by the way, hit me up. You know, like, <laughs> dorky stuff. Like, as anyone who's, you know, a, a dork who, like, you know, listens to an also-ran film podcast, you can understand what it's like to be a marginalized person. We love you all. Right, yes. So, to have a movie where, like, this guy's talking about, hey, I really like this thing, and everyone rakes me over the coals for it, you're like... I don't need to dress in women's clothes to understand where you're coming from. You think Ed Wood was a middle child or something? Right. Yes. The uh, that that fine sense of injustice. Yeah, I think he was an elder brother, but I'm not sure. Oh well, uh, wh- fuck him then. I believe he was because he was um, Edward D. Wood Jr. and had a younger brother. So. 
Oh, so he's also an asshole. The first, okay. the f- yeah, the first, the first son would uh, is usually going to be the one to carry the the father's name. But um, I don't think Ed Wood got along particularly well with his father. I don't think his father was a very warm person. Well, if this is taken to be autobiographical, he does list a couple of hypotheticals about you know men who dress as transvestites, and one of them was you know he a mother who always wanted a daughter and a dad who didn't much care either way. Yeah, and. Yeah, now now we're getting into um, uh, sleepaway camp territory. <laughs> oh boy! Yeah, um, I love sweet sleepaway camp. What an amazing yeah. movie! I me- I met that actress too. She's great. She's oh, a treat. do you mean uh, Felissa Rose of yeah. Sleepaway Camp and Victor Crowley? And Victor Crowley, yes. Yeah. She was at the booth for B Movie TV, That's and awesome. she was like, she was fangirling over. Um, ah, shoot, I forget his I forget his name now, but he's a. Very recognizable horror luminary. There were a few at that at that con. Remember at, going at the, to conventions? At the horror convention? Yeah. Remember going outside? Not anymore. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> just um, a, a dim memory. I, I mean, yeah. If 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 now is the perfect time to go outside dressed as a woman because no one else is there. Like, <laughs> you know, who's going to notice? And well, you know, you'll have a mask on, so no one can know it's you anyway. Well, uh, nobody will see your lipstick though. Um, as it turns yeah. out, uh, Ed Wood's mother did dress him as a girl when he was very young. You don't say. Mm-hmm. Well, um, case closed, Sigmund. Case closed, Sigmund Freud. Yeah, and this <laughs> is um, and this is kind of interesting because you know the movie, in in spite of Wood being very clear about what a transvestite is and isn't. You know, just by the nature of the production, there's still a little bit of muddying the waters between a transvestite and a transgendered person. Um, Just because the movie uh, concludes with the story of a successful sex change or, you know, that that bit is toward the end anyway. Um, And because that was the topic that the producer wanted to make the movie about, like, you know, he didn't he didn't know about all this Angora sweater shit. He was just like, hey, like everyone's really into this Christine Jorgensen story. It's mm -hmm. wild. Like, let's make a movie about it. Um, Well, also, like you can't start your movie with a sex change and then talk about transvestite. That's right. Well, the well, really what the movie opens with, you know, after we get past the weird Bill Lugosi word salad is a Mm -hmm. suicide. Right. Yeah. And that is. That plays like a horror movie um, where, you know, it is the tragic tale that um, prefaces the story that we're going to go into. It is a man who couldn't resolve in himself these two identities of him, Mm -hmm. you know, wanting to dress or even be, you know, to to live as a woman. And then he's like, well, you know, I'm going to, you know, snap out my pilot light and turn on, you know, turn on the gas. Yeah. And, you know, let me be buried a woman. Yeah, um, and it's fucking sad. I mean, and think yeah, it, today, how many trans people are still buried under their dead names? Well, they're you know, buried, buried regardless. Um, well, yeah, yeah so, but I mean, you're being. Um, but the the point I'm making is that you know you assert your identity only to be robbed of it in death. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, so this is this is a tale of you know these the story ending tragically for one of these characters before we dive into our our contemporary story that is you know the autobiographical Ed Wood story mm-hmm. of a 
transvestite who is looking to get married to a woman who is clueless about his proclivities. And it's it really does reflect the reality because, you know, and you yeah. people always warn you, you know, like, don't like, you know, read too much autobiographical stuff like into a film but in this case it's like no this is this is like this is an open book read away yeah yeah and um as a matter of fact um the leading lady uh dolores fuller she was she was wood's girlfriend in real life and um i was really surprised to read on wikipedia that she said that she had she had no idea that Ed Wood was a crossdresser and that she didn't know it until, you know, she saw him dressed up for the movie. And I was like, how could that be? Like the guy, like, you know, lived his truth as much as he could, but he did kind of keep quite a bit from a lot of his girlfriends. Um, like he would ask to borrow, he loved, obviously he loved her Angora sweater. He would ask to borrow it and he'd be like, oh, well, you know, I write better when I'm wearing it. Right. Um, well, which yeah, is, yeah, if it's one thing off your mind, fine. Yeah, which, you know, I think might be true, but, you know, maybe isn't the whole truth. And, you know, you can be, you know, you can be like, oh, well, he shouldn't, why, why he shouldn't have lied to her. But it's like, I mean, he yeah, was afraid that, that she was going to freak out if he did yeah, tell her, the, like, hey, I like to dress like a woman. Yeah. And that is the difference, you know, between Ed Wood's story and this story and that the the protagonist in this does come clean and he does open up to his wife before their marriage about, hey, this is what I'm into. So, you know, he kind of you know, brings his complete self into the into this relationship. And he is, you know, to his credit, he's open with his um, very understanding wife about, hey, this is the thing that I'm into and I want you to know about it. And, yeah. you know, they, they ultimately like get him help. Like, they help him through it, and, you know, the marriage works out so he doesn't end up, like, you know, the tragic, you know, single, you know, cross-dressing man who commits suicide. Yeah, and um, interestingly, this this scenario didn't happen for Ed Wood and Dolores Fuller. Um, to be absolutely fair to her, she didn't dump him just because of the transvestism. She says that his alcoholism was actually, like, a bigger problem. Right. Which, and, you know, who knows what the antecedents of that are. Yeah. And I and, you know, like knowing how his later life turned out, it's it, you know, it's hard to blame her because I think that with his um, his third his third wife, uh, Kathy Wood, uh, they were together pretty much from like, I think, 1956 to 1978 when he died. And they were kind of you know obviously they were together the whole time but it was a case of a kind of a mutually an often mutually abusive relationship um they both were they both were dependent on alcohol um they fought a lot sometimes physically but you know they stuck together and i guess she you know she accepted this facet of his personality now that doesn't make it a healthy relationship. It was obviously like a pretty unhealthy relationship, albeit yeah, a long. It's a healthy life. part of an unhealthy relationship, and that's that's interesting too because you know when the um, you know, when the 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 lead like after his wife catches him, you know, lounging in like her best clothes, like then they, yeah. then they go to therapy for it, and you know the the wife is is very understanding, um, and. Uh, 
and and there is you know a, a sympathy there of like if she loves him she'll love even his flaws like you know it'd be like i love this man and i understand that there are these things that are important to him mm-hmm. and you know she's flexible enough to be like well i can just go along with it it's it's sort of like um uh, i forget what the what the what the therapist actually says but you know it's like okay so he likes to dress up like like women like you know is that a deal breaker for you basically yeah. and it's like yeah how how important is it to you that he likes to do this thing like how much of a problem is it it would you know it, it would be like um uh uh you know james stewart being like i want you to dress as a blonde now it can't matter to you (laughs) (laughs) well i think glenn is a little bit healthier than uh james stewart's character in vertigo yeah maybe (laughs) maybe that's a the two sides of the same coin um yeah so so in this case you know the the wife is very or the fiance you know bride to be is is very understanding and she's kind of there as an audience surrogate to be like you know how okay are you with this and you know then it's a chance to inform the audience via her like what is it that this guy is into and it's like well you know is, is he you know is he a homosexual it's like no does he know mm-hmm. and he's is he a hermaphrodite like no he's you know he has a reason for wanting to dress like a woman and we can speculate on what they they are and we and the movie does go into them and in in the more florid way like i do like the movie has like this whole like nightmare scenario like this whole dream sequence yeah of like you know hit of like a a tree falls on his wife and he can't like he can't get lift the trunk off of her dress as a woman but dress as a man he can yeah and the uh, the thing that i Visually, what I really love is the two of them at the altar, and then there's the priest there. But then, you know, to the to the left of the priest is you know this devil that the um, that that the man is bringing into this marriage. It's like marry me, also marry my demons. Right. And you know, visually, like it's it it works in a way. Like it's it's conveying a message. You know, it's it's what you might call good cinematography. There's actually some cool lighting in this movie. Yeah, I like that it has. I like that it takes this kind of, um, you know, expressionistic turn partway through to to go over all these issues that you know the this transvestite man is wrestling with. And there's that again. It's it's a little ham handed, but there is um, you know Bella Lugosi talking about this you know green dragon that eats little boys. Yeah, and then there's that recurring motif which I wanted to ask you about, mm-hmm. which is there's this uh, kind of light motif of uh, you know the thing about snips and snails and puppy dog tails, which yeah. I think represents a kind of disgust with the masculine. Oh yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah clearly. Which, and it's like, know, hey, it, you're made of all this gross, disgusting shit. Yeah, and it's 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 a really fucked like dynamic that they kind of inculcate us with, like from early on, where it's like, well, you know, girls are nice and sweet, and boys are disgusting. Yeah, you're just disgusting collection of awful. Yeah, and it's not... and if you're Ed Wood, you're like, the fuck did I do to deserve this? Well, yeah, if you're like any kid, it's like, well, what the fuck? 
Like, yeah, you know, like you get the I'm gr- I'm the garbage. Yeah, like you get the the you know you get the girls who don't want to be sweet and nice, and then you get the boys who are like, well, no, I'm not I'm not gross, am I? Yeah, like I'm a I'm a human being deserving of dignity, am I not? Like, yeah, well, no, only if you dress like a woman. Like the way then that, you get to be sweet and nice, and everyone <clears throat> loves yeah, you. Yeah, and the way that that it's in. You know, it's repeated almost to a comical degree. And, you know, in Bela Lugosi's voice, too, which, yeah. is, which makes it, like, even more disconcerting is, is uh, you know, the, the, oh, puppy dog tail. Ha, ha, ha. And it's like, Jesus Christ. It's like yeah, and, disgust and, I'm, and horror. Yeah, and I'm talking about this green dragon, this green-eyed monster of envy that consumes, you know, this, you know, masculine energy. Mm-hmm. To be like, well, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to present as a man anymore because I don't want to be the garbage. You know, it's Ed being like, I want to be pretty. I want people to like me. Yeah. And it's it's um, the, the other interesting thing about the, the feel of the movie is in another thing, which is kind of still relevant in the discourse today is, um, you know, depictions of queerness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we can we can shove Glenn or Glenda into that. Box because while you know like transvestism isn't you know directly analogous to being queer, it's like you know this this is a movie about queerness just Mm -hmm. because of of the subject matter. Um, Yeah, I mean queer in like the most like you know uh, like simplest terms. Right, right, right. And, you know, it does, you know, it does deal with things like, uh, you know, transgenderism and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But, um, you know, the point that I want to make is that in, you know, today's discourse, like after, you know, like decades after Stonewall and in a time of like, you know, queer and trans visibility, there's a discomfort, um, particularly among younger people with any negative depiction of queerness anything which doesn't depict being queer in the most sanitized and positive light oh like cruising (laughs) right you know a a a really a really uplifting movie like like cruising right um well you know it's about a man you know finding his true nature really well it's yeah and there are people who you know they don't they don't like any kind of depiction of queer topics which even approaches either you know self-hatred or disgust or horror or any of those negative qualities in spite of how common they are to the queer experience you know right. not saying that like oh no it's this is good and fine it's like they simply are um yeah, cruising, I, mean, yeah, I think, we, is a cruising is a very, very important depiction of a subculture, like right on the cusp of its decimation, because that movie was mm-hmm. made in like 1980. Um, and yeah, those almost Babylonian in a way. Yeah, and those um, those subcultures are always going to exist, and they're going to exist. Especially when they're like virulently oppressed, right. like people are going to do weird, dark shit. I mean, you know, uh, Ed Wood would go out in drag in spite of the fact that he was putting his life at risk. Yeah, and that's kind of so. the thing. That, that that's kind of the thing that they. Um, j- just an aside, I want to draw the connection between this green dragon and red dragon. 
Ah. Yeah, another character trying to undergo their own personal transformation. Yes. Um, but the uh, the point that I wanted to make about the uh, the the therapy, mm. like the couples therapy that they go through, um, and you know, by by way of uh, teaching the um, the wife, they teach the audience. Like here's you know here is why your husband you know here's what your husband likes. Here's why he's this way. Here are stories about other men who have turned out this way because of, you know, things in their childhood or things from parenting. And what they then establish is like, you know, Glenda is this character that Glenn created to kind of escape to, but, you know, Glenda is ultimately a, um, a, uh, a, a construct like, you know, Glenda isn't real. Glenda is the outlet, you know, the, the, um, uh, personification of these feelings that Glenn has, and if you address the feelings, you know, if you address the reasons why he feels this way, it's possible for Glenda to go away. Like he can be be cured of his need for need to be Glenda if he's given the things that he only gets by being Glenda. Mm-hmm. Like if he if he's able to feel you know comfortable in the way he dresses, or you know to feel attractive, or you know to, to feel desirable. Or, you know, just for whatever reason, to have, you know, approval of his parents or of someone in his life who loves him. You know, mm-hmm. his wife pretty much taking that caretaker role. I know, doing the emotional labor. Um, well, that's an incorrect use of emotional labor that has been uh, pushed by uh, liberal feminists. But Right, yeah. Well, you, can, you can't see the air quotes in the podcast. But, <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but right. yeah, that, that's her, like, you know, actually doing the work in a relationship to care for the other person. And, you know, through, I don't know, through the love of a, uh, of, you know, a, a caring and committed relationship, he's able to dispense with this, um, you know, this uh, sort of what's been a debilitating uh, paraphilia for him. Like and he only needs Glenda as a coping mechanism. Yeah. And it's an interesting depiction and something which you don't see a lot in, current media but it was it was all over the place in media of the 20th century this notion of like a divided or fragmented self mm-hmm. um and i know that uh after kind of a, a mania about um what they now call dissociative identity disorder in the 80s and 90s it's uh it's kind of fallen by the wayside a bit and you know i, I think the consensus is that an actual um, you know, what they used to call multiple personality disorder is actually extremely rare and is usually the result of incredibly severe trauma. Or but... lazy screenwriting, yes. <laughs> True. Um, but you saw it everywhere in in media at, mm-hmm. at the time. And, you know, Glenn or Glenda is not, uh, you know, is no exception because it's almost like, you know, Glenda is like this other self that, lives yeah. within Glenn. It's like, uh, you know, um, Sybil or, th- or Three Faces of Eve. Yeah, yeah. It's like when things get tough for, for Glenn, he retreats into being Glenda because it's like, you know, it, it's, you know, his <clears throat> way of, you know, treating himself, his safe space, if you will. Yes, his home and, box. Yeah, and, and the thing, too, that I like about, um, uh, again, like very, uh, you know, progressive, you know, science-based, you know, approach in this movie is that, you know, whether they talk about, you know, Glenn's rehabilitation, 
into, you know, not needing Glenda as an outlet for his, his self-expression and for, um, uh, um, you know, Al Jorgensen, whatever, uh, who, <laughs> Glenn, Glenn or Glenda Jorgensen, who, who undergoes the, the sex change operation. Um, oh, um, Alan or Anne. Yeah, a, a, yeah, Alan, Alan or Anne, um, he undergoes the sex change operation and the, um, the the point that the movie makes is, is specifically he says you know it is the mind where the decision is made, mm-hmm. so whether, um, so whether Glenn needs Glenda or not, and I'm not saying that you know he needs to dispense with Glenda in order to be cured, mm-hmm. like maybe that's just not for some transvestites maybe that's not what they're about, maybe they you know prefer their life with Glenda in it. Mm-hmm. Just as with this, um, you know, transsexual, you know, he he felt a need to change his body to meet what his expectations were of his mind. And granted, it is possible to change one's mind on these issues. But, you know, the reason that sex reassignment surgery exists is because it is easier to change the body in this case than it is to change the mind. Yeah. And I was and looking- all these options exist on a continuum. You know, you could be dead set one way or another or be somewhere in between. It's interesting you mentioned that because I was looking at a study recently. Uh, yeah, no, it was a it was a series of studies that uh, someone was presenting online, um, basically pointing out that um, I think much like homosexuality, there is no quote unquote cure mm-hmm. for being trans apart from helping the person to make their identity commensurate with their, you know, what they feel is their gender. And they were citing studies from back in the, like going way back to the, you know, the mid, you know, the fifties and sixties where they had actually studied uh, transgender people and had concluded like, no, well, no, like we, you know, we can't actually cure them. Um, you know, if we continue to try to force them to, you know, live as their assigned gender, like, you know, more often than not, like the result is, you know, mental illness or suicide. But, you know, once right. yeah, people are like, allowed to express their gender, um, you know, the outcomes are better. And this yeah, has or, been proven again and again and again. And yet we're still having this fucking argument in 2021. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or, you know, to, to paraphrase the line from Boogie Nights, wear what you dig. <laughs> Right. I feel like we should end it with that, but I mean, there's so much more left to go on. And and yeah, like I, yes, like it's, you, it doesn't make any more sense to attempt to cure someone of, you know, the, uh, cure a transsexual any more than it does make sense to try and cure someone of being a homosexual. Right. Right. Yeah. So. Well, where are we in the story, Tim, since this movie touched you uniquely, like, um. Yeah, it was discussion. Yeah, it was it was like a it was like being enveloped in a in a, a velvet uh in an angora sweater. Um <laughs> uh, I blew that. All right. Um well, uh, there are a couple of there are a couple of like vignettes because the movie is kind of stream of consciousness in a way. It really um, is. Yeah. I like um you know as is uh as much of as Ed Wood persuaded us, he is not a uh He's not a skilled screenwriter. 
Right. He is he's a prolific one, but not a he, skilled one. Yeah, he had a, he had a lot of ground to cover, and there are a couple of um, uh, a couple of vignettes that I liked in it that also I think were significant for a couple of reasons. One is you know the um, just the aside about the uh, GI who keeps a the you know a storage locker of you know women's clothes who so can you know, go out on the weekends. The the takeaway yes. from that that I liked is Ed Wood reiterating that just because you like to dress up like a woman doesn't make you any less of a man. Because he's talking about, like, and this is, again, this is autobiographical mm-hmm. for Ed Wood. This is him, like, storming the beaches in World War II yes. and being like, how very dare you consider that I'm any less of a man going to fucking war, you know, because I like to dress as a woman. Yes, because Ed Wood did serve in the Marine Corps, and yeah. he did tell people, and, you know, there's no way to verify it, and I'm not sure how he would have been able to do it <laughs> in that environment, but he did claim to have had on a uh, a brawn panties under his uniform. But, I mean, like, if, if you were Ed and that was your thing and you were about to see, you know, combat action... That would be the point where you're just like, yeah, fuck it, I'm doing this. Well, and he, in fact, he said um, to one of the people who knew him during his military service and who I guess was, was you know, uh, chill with his transvestism as well. He was like, yeah, like, honestly, I, I hoped I would be killed because, you know, I wouldn't have known how to explain it if I'd been captured. You know, yeah. like, hey, I just got different underwear. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they gave me the wrong size. <laughs> they gave me, they what did what did they call the ladies who served in World War Two? Uh, wax, wax? Yeah. waves. <laughs> they gave me the whack uniform. <laughs> <laughs> big, yeah, big cock up. It was a, I, I think it was one of the episodes in Black Adder goes forth. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, but like yeah. he 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 did claim to have uh, served in drag in a fashion. Yeah. So yeah, that's another that's another autobiographical part of the movie yeah and given the context of it be like yeah if you were being sent to die you know somewhere in like the south pacific be like yeah fuck it i'm doing this like what what are they gonna do like make you go go home and change yeah i mean like i do like you do make a good point because like on hearing that anecdote i was like well how would you like you know you're living in a barracks with a bunch of other guys it's like how do you do that on the sneak but um you know people figure out a way to like dress and drag or be trans in all kinds of hostile environments. So yeah, you know, that's I'm, I'm just, sure that's just had, human ingenuity. Yeah. I'm sure he had decades to figure out a system. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so that was a, a nice aside, you know, too, because it is like, you know, if you're going to go out, go out on your own terms. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, just because he's a transvestite, it doesn't make him any less of a man. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you want to get, you know, sort of, you know, metatextual about it, is transvestism part of the, you know, male experience? Is that allowed as, you know, what it means to be a man? Yeah, that's an because, interesting point. Because, yeah, I mean, you know, like a lot of, like like emotional labor, like the term toxic masculinity gets thrown around with reckless abandon, yeah. regardless of what it actual mean, actually means. But in it's, this case... Um, it's not a very useful term, if it ever No, was. it isn't. It, it, it is code for I hate men. Essentially, uh-huh. yeah. It, it's, yeah. Um, you know, it, like... It, it's never used as an empathetic term. It's not, and it's... Um, that's a really good point about it. Um, yeah. Hey, term, I mean, hey, you may as well say snips and snails and puppy dog tails. 
Yeah, and I know that initially it was supposed to be a way of articulating, you know, a type of masculinity. Like, you right. know, this is one way that, you know, boys like, and a, men a are taught. notion, yeah. Yeah, that they're, you know, that, that um, because, you know, you can be a man, but you can be a man in like a really kind of malignant way. Yeah, um, or a narrowly defined way that doesn't allow for, you know... Yeah. Heroes in the South Pacific to be wearing women's underwear. Yeah, which, you know, would be fine, except that it, um, well, you know, and there are so many other words and phrases like this that need to go in the pile because, you know, it's like gaslighting <laughs> doesn't fucking mean anything anymore because, like, you know, gaslighting means someone disagreed with me on Twitter. Right, right. Um, you know, emotional labor has been completely divorced from its original academic me meaning as uh, something specifically done by people in service jobs for customers right. and now it's like oh God, like i had to i had to listen to my boyfriend bitch about his job yeah you know? yeah it's it's smiling when you aren't happy like that kind of thing yeah and it it's 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 no longer useful and i think like toxic masculinity is the same thing where it's like it's now become like well like that guy's kind of a dick and it's yeah. it doesn't allow for any kind of deeper analysis of what makes some men behave the way that they do yeah and and the worst thing too is that it is like dismissive and mm -hmm. reductive in the same way that ed is fighting against in this movie to yeah. be like i am a human being deserving of dignity like i you know i fought for my country you know i i love my wife mm -hmm. i also like to dress like a woman like can't you just leave me the fuck alone and let me live my life? Like I've, I've mm -hmm. paid my, you know, I've made my contributions to society. Why can't society just allow, you know, me to be a part of it? Yeah. So yeah, like I, I really get where he's coming from here. Jumping off from that. Um, there's also a sequence, uh, filmed in, in inimitable Edward fashion, entirely mm -hmm. with stock footage and voiceover, which appears to the, depict the factory. Yeah, like two yeah. regular guys, two just regular Joes, talking about these strange fellas who want to be Goyles, mm -hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> it's uh, well, I don't know. What did you think of that that part, Tim? I think the visual metaphor is apt. How so? Uh, because it's two steel workers ostensibly talking, and they're talking about, oh, this guy wants to be a lady. And it's like, well, hey, you know, maybe if if that makes him feel okay, maybe I should, you know, be okay with it too. That's kind of like the gist of it. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, they're talking, and it's like, there's this hot, thick steel ingot coming out of the furnace and then receding it back inside it. It's like... <laughs> Maybe he wants to be a dame. Hey, I don't know. That's okay. <laughs> um, what really got me about this sequence? Yeah. Is something which again still makes the movie relevant today. Now, mm -hmm. there's a certain segment of the left that believes that, you know, we've gone too far with all this identity politics crap. And, you know, the average, the, you know, we should really be concerning ourselves with the working class and the working class, they don't give a fuck about any of this queer shit and they don't want to hear about it. And they want to be able to say slurs whenever they want, because that's the kind of earthy folks that they are. Um, 
Which <laughs> the real salt of the earth people, you know, morons. <laughs> That's exactly it is yeah. it and you know, without getting too deep into it because it's a little bit of a cul-de-sac, it's it's mm-hmm. it's really reductive and it assumes that there's an intrinsic reactionary quality to the working class. Mm-hmm. And it also assumes that there are no you know, there are no queer or queer people or people of color in the working class who might care about these yeah, issues. Yeah, where's where's the intersexual intersexuality? Where's the intertextual <laughs> right. uh yeah uh, angle to that? Yeah. Of being like, yeah, I'm a working class person who likes to dress up as a woman and everyone hates that. Yeah. Like, I mean it's that it's like uh like people lose sight of this and it's it's really this is a thing which is really well summed up by this little sequence. You know, if, and I know that this is a conversation made up um, out of whole cloth by oh, yeah. Ed Wood, but he's still saying it's a possibility that two regular working class guys in 1953 might have a discussion and come to a mutual understanding that queer people should deserve our empathy and sympathy. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, um, it's one of the things that they, um, you know, that, that Ed, you know, mentions earlier on is, you know, just the notion of, you know, maybe society to try to understand them as human beings. Like, you know, the, the scope of human experience is vast mm-hmm. and, you know, convoluted. And like, if the, the problem, you know, I think at the time is that, yeah, they're, you know, people at the time are living in such a, you know, structured society to be like, look, we just want to know, you know, women act girly, you know, men don't express emotions and, you know, everyone works, you know, nine to five and drinks when they get home. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't want that to change because it's a pretty stable system. But then you start introducing, you know, differences and subtlety and nuances and outliers into that. Suddenly, like this perfect little system doesn't work so perfectly anymore. Mm-hmm. Although the problem is that for everyone who's an outlier, that system never worked perfectly for them. Exactly. And, and that's really, you know, the 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 core of this movie is saying, like, it, it's calling for some understanding and for some sympathy for your people who, you know, are the these square pegs. That it's like, that that's what the conversation between these two steelworkers is about, is like, if it makes them happy, you know, what what does that harm me? Like, mm-hmm. just just have some basic empathy for your fellow human being. To be like, okay, this is what he wants. It doesn't hurt me at all for him to get what he wants. Okay. Yeah, yeah just like leave it be. It's sort of this like null hypothesis. Like, you know, it, it is, doesn't hurt me. Go for it. Knock yourself out. Yeah, and this is another case of the kind of the autobiographical like bleeding onto the screen. And I think mm-hmm. it has a lot to do with why, um, you know, it isn't just that Ed's, Ed Wood's movies are hilarious to watch or campy or whatever um i think a lot of the success of burton's ed wood and um you know forgive Mm -hmm. me for you know speaking off like memories of the movie um i think a big part of the success of it was um that it had this very eclectic cast of characters um you know representing the social group that ed wood was part of Mm -hmm. and a lot of these people were marginal you know it's like you had a 
you, you yeah, like a, Vampire isn't an A-lister by any means. Right. You know, like, uh, it, you know, Vampira was like popular when she was on TV, but, you know, after that fleeting success, you know, she was she was pretty marginalized in Hollywood and she was like a very freaky kind of person to see you know like she she like kind of pioneered like the you know the gothic like elvira like horror host thing it was Mm -hmm. that is a very like extraordinary look for the 1950s yeah Um, and you know uh he uh, and would you know cultivated all these relationships with like marginal people you know you also had um bella lugosi at the end of his career no one was calling him from hollywood in spite of him playing one of the most iconic him being the iconic dracula yeah Yeah. one of the like the 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 depiction of dracula which like just defined the vampiric monster on the screen and also like a very credible actor in his own right he wasn't he wasn't a slouch but you know nobody was calling and he was a junkie Mm -hmm. um you know wood and his you know his wife like they were they were alcoholics um you know, a lot of his, a lot of the people that he worked with were queer. Um, I can't remember the guy's name. Bunny from, uh, he was played by Bill Murray in, uh, in Ed Wood. Bunny I don't know, but yeah. He's, he's the, he's the incredibly queeny alien in Plan 9. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that was, you know, again, that, and he was a wealthy heir, but, you know, he was also queer, which, you know, like, I think the money was like a, you know, kind of a cushion, which let him live his life the way he wanted to. And, um, he actually did pursue, um, sex change surgery for a little while, but eventually Mm -hmm. was obliged to give up on it. Um, just the fact that he was able to pursue it at all, I think like, you know, speaks to the, the fact that he had like a little bit of material comfort. Um, you know, Kelton, the cop, uh, Paul Mm -hmm. Marco, you know, also gay, like, uh, like Wood was surrounded by all these weirdos. Yeah. And I think that these people still seize our imagination because we're like, hey, like, I'm pretty weird, too. <laughs> I like these weird people. <laughs> I like that these people are like, you know, yeah, just this isn't, something different. Yeah. It's like these people aren't like, you know, the cream of society or whatever. It's like they're freaks and they're marginal and they're like, uh, you know, they're. You don't know what you're going to get. It's kind of like why I keep watching B-movie TV. Like, I know the movies aren't good, but I keep watching because I'm curious. Like, what's what's going to happen next? Yeah, and I think and I hope that um, it's also something which has come through in our podcast is that, you know, as much as a lot of these movies are trash, you can learn mm-hmm. a lot from trash. Yeah, and a lo- like a lot of these episodes, too, you don't know what you're going to get. <laughs> we hope that you're learning from our trash. Um, now, speaking of marginalized people, I came across this detail in Nightmare of Ecstasy. And I was saving this just for you, Tim. Okay. Um, so this He's was left-handed, relevant. left-handed, isn't he? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> My biggest resentment. So this this is, uh, this is describing Ed Wood. Again, towards the end of his life, um, he and his wife were living in a really shitty apartment in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. That, does, that doesn't narrow it down, does it? Um, no, I, I mean, were they paying uh, $1,800 a month for it? Yeah. <laughs> They were living in Hollywood, and uh, Ed Wood, I think, was writing, uh, you know, he's making porn flicks and, you know, writing, uh, you know, jerk-off books or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's also an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a, a reminiscence from uh, Phil Cambridge, who was a publisher who employed him in his last years. 
Um, he says uh, he would get paid on Friday and Ed would shuffle home in his terrible little slippers. He would go down to Playboy Liquor. <laughs> <gasps> I would to cash, Playboy Liquor. They would cash his check because he would buy the weekend's liquor. And I, <laughs> I, when I saw Playboy Liquor name checked, I screamed. Oh my God. Yes, that's right around the corner from Todd. Yes, um, Tim and I had a very good friend who's not not living in Hollywood currently, but for a while, like, might as well have been the mayor of Hollywood Boulevard. Um, yeah, but he yeah. lived around the corner from uh, Hollywood Boulevard and the Playboy Liquor Store. And yeah. the funny thing about, and, you know, Angelinos might know this, but this is the funny thing about Playboy Liquor. Um, I used to spend a lot of time on the, the Find a Death website, uh, which, you know... It, used to. It is what it says on the tin. It's like isn't, all yeah, celebrity deaths. Yeah, like Margarita right near, next door? I think so. Okay, <clears throat> cool. And, um... <laughs> oh, man, such precious memories. I know, right? And the guy who runs Find a Death, uh, this guy Scott, like, he does, like, he you know, he'll do, like, death tours where he takes you around to where all these celebrities died. And if you go to his website... He will, you know, go to the sites of these famous deaths and, you know, take pictures and talk about the scene or whatever. And um, I don't remember which celebrity it was, but there was one entry where he said that he went to this part of Hollywood and it was so awful and shitty and he was scared the whole time he was there. And he's like, I'm never fucking going back there. Well, it was the area right around the Playboy Liquor Store. <laughs> and if you've lived in Los Angeles, like, you know, like, how shitty Hollywood is. But, like, the Hollywood fact... is very shitty in, like, a lot of different ways. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, this guy who, like, goes around, like, tracking down, like, you know, the, tri- the detritus of celebrity deaths is like, yo, fuck this place. <laughs> it's so hilarious. <laughs> but that is where Ed Wood used to buy his liquor. Oh, man. Braver man than me. Oh, man. Is it still? I got to look it up now. I, I mean, I want to I want you know, I, I hope it wasn't killed by the pandemic. There's it couldn't have been. People still drink. I, the, the bar next door, I think, has been killed by the pandemic. And that was kind of a it was a really nice place. But I mean, it was a hole in the wall. Like, so it didn't have a lot of foot traffic. Right. And, you know, talk about Ed being bad with his money. Like he could have gone across the street and gone to the CVS. Like the liquor is much cheaper there. Playboy liquor, baby. It's still there and it delivers. Yeah. Six four three five Yucca Street, Los Angeles, nine zero zero two eight. You know, oh, if you're man, in Hollywood. I'm nostalgic, yeah. And uh And you're dressed like a woman. And you're not afraid of uh, you know, getting stabbed. Why mm-hmm. not stop by the Playboy liquor store, pour one out for our friend Ed Wood. <laughs> pour one out for Glenn and Glenda. Yeah. Because we believe that they should, yes, we believe that, the, that both Glenn and Glenda should be able to live their truth. Right. Yeah. And that's really like the, the crux of this. Um, I, I believe that's the third time I've said this, but um, yeah, like, like the problem as presented in this movie isn't the condition, but it's a lack of understanding and like a lack of, of you know, options and of community support. Like, I mean, these are all people who are just out of step with society. And if, mm-hmm. you know, society can be, you know, brought in or expanded to include, you know, at least some understanding about what these people are going through, it makes it, you know, a lot easier for them. And I think it, you know, enriches everyone, you know, across the board, you know, just to like, you know, not have to be like this marginalized, you know, pariah. Yes, exactly. And um, yeah. 
I mean, that was kind of how Ed Wood ended his life, um, you know, as we described at the beginning of the episode. Um, he died before he really saw this flowering of interest in his films, mm-hmm. which, you know, sadly is a is an all too common story. Um, he had been evicted from the house that he was living in with his wife, Kathy. Um, you know, they got this shitty apartment on Yucca. Mm-hmm. in Hollywood. Um, putting the yuck in yucca. Yeah, and then they uh, they got thrown out of it, I think, because they, they fought so much. The landlord was sick of them. But, um, you know, just remember that what uh, Mouse said about landlords was entirely correct. Um, so <laughs> yeah, they got kicked that. out, and um, they went to live with an actor friend, and a few days later, Ed passed away of a heart attack. I think hard living and no prospects had finally caught up with him. Yeah. Um, but that was the same month that Glenn or Glenda started screening all the way on the other coast in New York. And Ed Wood became a, a cult figure. Or as they said in Crash, he died and became immortal. <laughs> That's was true. I glib? Was I glib there? <laughs> I don't know. Well, let me, um, let me pull a quote from, uh, uh, what the hell was this book called again? Let, let me pull a quote from The Cinematic Misadventures of Ed Wood, which uh, I kind of maligned the book when I talked about it. And it's not great, um, maybe good for completists, but really the the, the forewords are worth a read. And um, one of the, uh, the first one by uh, Ted Newsom was very interesting. Ted Newsom. Ted Nugent? Te- no, <laughs> nothing Ted Nugent says is worth entertaining for even a second i don't know cat scratch fever is pretty entertaining (laughs) um go on let's pour one out for the 14 year old that ted nugent married um (laughs) i hope she's hey you know it's just different differences (laughs) oh god Um, but yeah this this is from the forward by by ted newsome who as i mentioned earlier without naming him he he made a, a documentary about wood and in particular in this Uh, forward takes pains to debunk some myths surrounding him but he also doesn't pull any punches which i think is important um as ted newsom put it in his forward how much can you say he tried mostly failed and died that's that's my epitaph yeah um and you know that 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 kind of sums it up (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe yours was better. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, the the thing too, and this this has less to do with um, Ed Wood and more about like the social issues surrounding <clears throat> you know the movie itself. Um, <clears throat> I I really appreciate the sort of um, even handed clinical approach that it has to the subject of you know transvestites and transsexuals um, because you know it, it doesn't look at them in any kind of judgmental fashion. And that we have a uh, psychiatrist or, or uh, you know, mental health specialist doling out a lot of the information here is, you know, is appropriate because they kind of set the tone for how the audience should should look at this. And one, there there are two things that he says that I that are really appreciated. One of them is um, is that you know, they they have a very uh, operant approach to the issue of transsexuals they see it as a problem to be solved whether Mm -hmm. it's with you know therapy or you know hormones or you know surgery 
it is it is a person saying, you know, I feel bad because of X, and they're like, oh well, we have the technology to fix that. We can make it so you aren't sad anymore. We can make it so you're comfortable in your own skin, so you can live the kind of life that you want to. Mm-hmm. And like, I I really appreciate that, you know, operant approach to it being like, oh, this is this is a problem. We have a solution. Yes. You know what what what's what's wrong with that? What's wrong with enacting a solution to a problem to make someone's life better? The other thing that I like too from the same character is you know they're talking about the Alan Ann. Um, uh, situation of you know the the character who wants a sex change i i do like that um at one point they're like you know they they tie it back to the original um you know frankenstein you know fear of new technology that you know lugosi establishes in the beginning and you know they describe Anne as you know almost as a frankenstein monster i'm sure Anne is like oh thanks thanks a lot for that um, <laughs> well you know maybe the maybe the mary shelley novel really rem uh, resonated with her and yeah, um, yeah. i have to say there's <clears throat> in the research that i did for this episode which you know was uh probably more compressed than i'd like i wasn't able to find any information about uh the person who played alan slash ann who mm-hmm. was an actor named tommy haynes with tommy in quotation marks which is kind of interesting that is um, also interesting yeah i think it's the only film that Tommy Haynes appeared in um and there is a mention at the beginning of the film uh that as Ed Wood puts it many of the smaller parts uh are played by persons who are what they portray on the screen and that is the that is true of Tommy Haynes also true of um uh, a sympathetic friend that um Glenn pours his heart out to yeah um, later in the movie who you know is also a transvestite and you know has had broken relationships because of it Mm -hmm. um so if anyone knows of more information about some of the actors in this movie i would really like to know more because you know much like ed wood these were people who were probably living on the margins do you think the wachowskis could remake glenn or glenda i'd watch it it can star elliot page (laughs) <laughs> you almost did a spit take there you go i almost got a spit take out of jen and and speaking of um again one of one of the other things that i didn't get to uh talk about that i it is a subtle brilliant moment in um the uh in the the psychiatrist talking about the um alan ann character this, you know, as he's explaining it to the, I guess, the audience surrogate, the police detective. Yeah. Um, where he's explaining, like, you know, how Alan is, you know, intersex. Like, he has, you know, one uh, functioning pair of, you know, genitals and a, like, vestigial, you know, uh, mm-hmm. vestigial one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and so he's talking about how, you know, Alan has this decision where, you know, he's been Alan up until now. But I really had to take a moment to, you know, stop and appreciate the precision with which the therapist describes Alan's choice. And it is whether he wanted to be a man or she wanted to be a woman. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Yeah, because it is completely taking the patient on their own terms, saying, this is what I want to be. And this, even like, you know, pronouns are 
fucking thing on the internet, but this is 1953 of the guy being like, you know, they, they say they want to be a she. I'm, I'm going to say it's a she. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and that also reminds me of another brilliant fucking thing, too. Not from this movie. But yeah, I just love that the, like, you know, the precision and um, authenticity in what the uh, psychiatrist is saying being, like, he is a man and she or she wants to be a woman. And, like, that is that is that encompasses, like, the entire argument right there. Um, but to refer to them as it reminds me of the subtle prejudices of Deckard and Blade Runner. How can it not know what it is? Exactly. And he doesn't even see Rachel as a being. Rachel is a something. Yeah, and um, I was very taken aback uh, when I first saw it. There's a bit in Nightmare of Ecstasy where I, I don't remember which of um, the people who knew Ed Wood it was, but they were talking about, um, you know, because obviously Ed Wood hung out with a lot of um, transvestites and, you know, transgender and transsexual people. And uh, the person relating the anecdote was describing like a transgender woman that mm -hmm. Ed hit, was hanging out with, but he referred to this person as it. Yeah. Which is... It's dehumanizing, you know, yeah. like Deckard regarding a replicant. Yeah, and it's incredibly glaring today. And, you know, they're, uh, uh, you know, and I think the book came out in like 1989 or so where, you know, um, we, we hadn't had this flowering of, um, you know, cultural knowledge about transgenderism. But, mm -hmm. you know, it is, it, it's, it's exactly like you said in, you know, the bit in, in Blade Runner, like he doesn't see Rachel as a person. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and that is done so much more beautifully and subtly than it is like with a voiceover, like where you know mm -hmm. Deckard is trying to describe you know uh, you know his captain and like you know what kind of prejudices he would have, but it's yeah. like no, like we're able to do that in a throwaway line about Deckard not you know being able to wrap his head around what the heck Rachel is. Yeah, and it's uh. It's, in the same way that, you know, the uh, society at large in Glen or Glenda is unable to wrap their head around, you know, being a perfectly normal, functional male who likes to dress like women. Yeah. And it's telling that, um, you know, these things that Wood was struggling with, like he had to write a positive resolution to it, you know, because his his uh, fiance does end up accepting this aspect of his personality mm -hmm. um and not only that but he also had to write compassionate and accepting figures of authority like you know a, a policeman who listens attentively to a psychiatrist who is also extremely sympathetic and compassionate towards well, I mean, like, trans I, I people yeah, and well, it's I, not I, that those and it's not that those people didn't exist at the time. Obviously they did, but I think, you know, it was more the exception than the rule. Right. Well, I mean, I can see it from the, you know, psychiatrist point of view because it's like, well, you know, I'm here to solve people's mental problems. You know, I can't see it from the cops' point of view to, to be like, look, this is an open shut case, so I need to put anyone in jail or not. <laughs> well, yeah, and you know, like, that kind I of uh do I that, need to pin this crime on a minority or can I go home early? Yeah, and you know, that plays into like a very relevant topic today where it's like we've, uh, for whatever reason, we expect 
our law enforcement to also be mental health professionals, which they are emphatically not suited for. for. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there is that tension. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's taking time at, that they could be spent, you know, writing parking tickets or, you know, harassing black people. <laughs> well, Tim, is there anything else that you would like to say about Glenn or Glenda? Uh, I'm, I'm glad that I made the Blade Runner connection in it. And I think that, <laughs> um, you know, really, like, my takeaway from it is, you know, Ed Wood as a person, like, you know, as <clears> is the same for all people, like, they just want to be good. Like, people just want to be good. They want to be comfortable and being who they are and whether that means you know having to try to like fit yourself into someone else's mold in order to be like the thing that is that is what you want to be like that you know can become pathological and it just Mm -hmm. means you know you need to have a little more sympathy into you know being compassionate to other people and you know what they're going through and to try to understand you know what those things are that made made them the way they are yeah and there is tremendous pathos to this movie as strange and comical as it occasionally is you know like stock footage shots of buffaloes notwithstanding yeah yeah the yeah a framing device of bell lugosi and like you know his hall of horrors yeah exactly um there and if you dive into the biography of ed wood like you know the pathos only increases from there um he was like the rest of us, like a very complicated guy with, uh, uh, you, you know, with flaws and, you know, he died rather ignominiously, but, you know, it is a life worth considering, you know, not just because of his impact as a filmmaker, but also as, you know, like an early advocate for people living on the margins. Yeah, I mean, as his himself being one of those people, you can understand, you know, why that was close to his heart. And that comes through in this movie as, you know, mm-hmm. a rough around the edges as it may be. Yeah, and uh, this movie is freely available, you know, of course, in the usual places. Um, it... To be, to be, to be, to be. Yes. <laughs> to be the good streaming service. Yeah, Real yeah. Move over know. Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Garbage I, that has endured. You can find it all on Tubi. Exactly. Tubi. And you can also watch Jack Jack's back there. Yeah. If, <laughs> if you're into dudes like Jen. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, go to the Playboy liquor store, get yourself a 40, uh, sit down with your Roku, and, uh, you know, take a look at Glenn or Glenda. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I think it's it's a redeeming work for an otherwise irredeemable screenwriter and director. Yeah, bless him, he tried. 